Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, and welcome back to FNS Unplugged. My name is Pietro Bordoletto, media editor for FNS Reports. It's a pleasure to be back together with my co-media editors, Daylon and Blake. How are you guys? Doing very well. Great to see you all, as always. How are you guys? I'm great. It's great to see your faces. Uh, you guys don't know it because you're listening, but these are a couple of beautiful men here, and we got an even better guest. Well, before we get to the guest, I want to say that this podcast episode is going to be coming out a couple of weeks after I have graduated from fellowship, which I'm very excited about, but also after our guest today, Dr. Sarah Gavrizi graduates from fellowship, and hopefully we have passed our written REI boards by the time you are listening to this episode. We'll have to report back next month. As you all know, Blake now is a board certified REI, which is exciting. Woo! But let's not waste any time talking about us. Let's talk about research. And in this month's FNS reports, we have a great new article published by Dr. Sarah Gravrizi, who by the time you're listening to this is the former third-year fellow at the Oklahoma University Fellowship Program, where Dr. Evans is currently working and on staff. This paper is entitled High Sensitivity C-Reactive Protein Levels and Pregnancy Outcomes in Women with Unexplained Infertility After Ovarian Stimulation with intrauterine insemination in a multi-center trial. It's always nice when data can be repurposed. This is data that's not necessarily old, but data that was collected on a lot of patients, and you've probably heard of it before, the Amigos trial. This paper is kind of an extension of that, but kind of with a new spin on something that I think people have been increasingly talking about, studying, and trying to figure out, does it matter at all? But rather than hear it from me, I'm going to let Dr. Gavrizi tell us a little bit more about it. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I would love to talk about this paper. Um, as you mentioned, it is a cohort analysis from the Amigo study, which was published in 2015. And so we know that chronic inflammation has been linked to adverse reproductive outcomes, things like recurrent miscarriage, IVF failures, just decreased fecundability in general. And the chronic inflammation can be measured using HSCRP as it's one of the acute phase reactants produced in the body. Going into this, we know that low-grade inflammation can be found in 20 to 40% of reproductive age women, but there's not really good data for the infertility population specifically, as it's not typically part of a, of a routine fertility workup. And so that's kind of what this paper was hoping to address. We wanted to identify the prevalence of elevated HSCRP levels and figure out their associations with treatment outcomes, things like clinical pregnancy, live birth, and miscarriage rates. And it worked out that with our facility, OU is a part of the Reproductive Medicine Network, and we kind of realized that we had this information in this population that HSCRP was actually collected. And so that's what we used. You mentioned the Amigo study was published in, in 2015 and included 12 centers, including ours. There were about 900 couples enrolled, and they were randomized to receive injectable gonadotropins, clomiphene, or letrozole, along with IUI for treatment. In this study, we uh, defined clinical pregnancy as the presence of an intrauterine sac-positive uh, fetal cardiac activity. And then we define pregnancy loss as a biochemical pregnancy or a clinical pregnancy 
loss and then live birth was delivery of a live infant. And so in this study, they had collected baseline reproductive and metabolic hormones, including HSCRP. So in all of the patients, they were collected in the early follicular phase before treatment started. So of the 870 patients that had gone on to um, complete at least one cycle, we did exclude some due to missing HSCRP measurements, some that had an ectopic, and then some that had multiple gestations, as we know that um, that can increase the, the risk of pregnancy loss. And so we ended up with about 781 patients in our analysis. We looked at the CRP concentration levels as categories. So we looked at less than one, um, one to three, and then three to 10 and greater than 10. And we based that on the American Heart Association's um, categorization for cardiovascular risk. Factors that could serve as a potential um, confounder were evaluated. Um, so things like age, race and ethnicity, treatment group, AMH levels, blood pressure and waist circumference. And what we did find was that between the groups, BMI, waist circumference and blood pressure were greater among women with elevated CRP concentrations. What we found is that um, among the 781 participants, 31.9% of them achieved a pregnancy, while 25.7% had a confirmed clinical pregnancy and 22.3% had a live birth. And then of those that did achieve a pregnancy, 309 had a biochemical or clinical pregnancy loss. Um, as far as the, the prevalence of elevated levels, so we used greater than three, again, based on the American Heart Association, and we found that 34.3% of our participants had an elevated level greater than three. And then also that there were technically fewer live births within those groups um, after adjusting for the confounders, but it wasn't statistically significant. Interestingly, though, among the women who did achieve a pregnancy, we found that the risk of pregnancy loss increased with increasing HSCRP levels. So compared to women with an HSCRP less than one, those with levels one to three, three to 10, and greater than 10 all had a significantly elevated um, risk of pregnancy loss. So putting all of this together, we concluded that the prevalence of, of elevated CRP levels is comparable to other reproductive aged women at, at 34.3%. You know, it's interesting though, because that normal value for, for reproductive women is based on three different data sets and two of the three actually excluded infertile women. So it's kind of hard to make that comparison. And then their HSCRP cutoffs were actually a little bit different. So they counted uh, elevated as above two and less than 10. And then also they didn't really standardize when these levels were collected because we do know that these levels can vary based on menstrual cycle phase as well. So overall, um, I think the study has a lot of strengths. There were a large number of participants. It was a multi-center trial. Our HSCRP levels were obtained at the same point in the menstrual cycle for all of our participants. Um, I think one of the main limitations is that we only have one data point, and we know that there can be some variation even cycle to cycle. But overall, um, you know, I think our main takeaway is that there is an increased risk of pregnancy loss in women with unexplained fertility with an elevated HSCRP, but our main takeaway is that there isn't a risk of pregnancy loss or an elevated risk of pregnancy loss in women with unexplained infertility, even with an HSCRP level as low as greater than one. 
but there's still not really a great cutoff or threshold for us to use to, to kind of assess what's normal and what's not. That was uh, one of my major takeaways too. And what really resonated with me was that there wasn't a real effect on clinical pregnancy, but the pregnancy loss. And I, that really jumped out because in terms of, I'm always thinking mechanism. And, and I know this is an association and kind of a diagnostic measure that you're trying to, to glean here. But I'm wondering, given that it doesn't seem to be interfering with the pregnancy, do you liken this to like a systemic response, a stress response in terms of pregnancy loss? And I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically the question behind the question is reading it up on this into this eager trial, it seemed like they were able to address the or intervene here with the low dose aspirin. Do you think that that based on your findings that you would recommend the same thing to try and retain pregnancies and, and high risk pregnancies? So that's a great question. And I, I think that that is definitely a reasonable suggestion, especially in those patients. So as you mentioned, the eager trial included women that had at least one or two losses. And what's interesting is, you know, they didn't see a big difference in women that were treated and those that didn't, but then they went on to do kind of a further analysis, looking at women that were compliant and actually took the aspirin for at least five days. And they did find that there was improved results. So they found at least eight more pregnancies per 100 participants, 15 more live births, and then six fewer pregnancy losses. So I do think um, I do think that there's something there, especially in, in higher risk women. I got a question about when and how we measure CRP because it's not something that I think a lot of reproductive endocrinologists ever measure and probably did some some point in residency, but we're kind of pretty far removed from it. I think in the Amigo study, this was all early follicular phase blood draws, just one single time point. Do you think we'd see more useful information or more potentially meaningful information if we check this in early pregnancy at the time of transfer, at the time of positive pregnancy test? Do you, do you think checking it kind of at this baseline early follicular phase makes sense? To me, it makes the most sense because we know that there's variation and we know that the highest level will be around menstruation. And so checking it when we expect it to be the lowest does make sense because I feel like it's giving us like a baseline look um, at, at their level. Well, Sarah, it's uh, always nice to have um, people my age on this podcast helping to reinforce some of the great science that's coming out from the fellowship programs and in the journal. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you all. All right. Uh, so often happens in this podcast when we pivot from reports to science to reviews, there's no logical um, pivot point. So I'm just going to say it. Dalon, you're up next. Tell us a little bit about um, your article in science this month on fertility preservation. Well, the pivot is from inflammation in, you know, trying to get pregnant to massive systemic inflammation and loss of fertility. I have to confess here, this is a bit of home cooking for me in as much as the paper I'm covering is 100% aligned with my own research focus, which is fertility preservation, right? So I want to give a little bit of background there. We have made pretty remarkable progress with cancer therapy, particularly in the treatment of childhood cancers like leukemia and other hematological malignancies where survival rates are now approaching 90% and above, which is an amazing step forward. 
But uh, the standardized cancer treatments out there, you know, notwithstanding these newfangled kind of cell-based CAR T type therapies, the standard of care often comes with a devastating cost, which is infertility, as that chemo or radiotherapy can inflict profound collateral damage on the gonad. Um, this is all, all the more devastating in young girls facing cancer because they're not mature enough to respond to ovarian hyperstimulation for egg freezing uh, and the gonadotoxic regimen can result in, in a massively accelerated onset of menopause, premature ovarian insufficiency, et cetera. For me, this is the really unrecognized tragedy of cancer survival. So one of the things that is done, in at least in terms of preserving fertility, was developed by a few intrepid uh, scientists, physicians over the last few decades, is cryopreserving intact ovarian tissue that can then be thawed once the patient is in remission and ready to commence or continue their family building process. And at that point, the tissue is thawed, auto-transplanted, either to orthotopic or heterotopic site, and the patient undergoes hormonal stimulation, oocyte aspiration, IVF. And there've been hundreds of babies at this point that have been born following these protocols, prior preservation and auto-transplantation of ovarian tissue. But the efficiency of the process remains really very poor. And you got to transplant like half of, of an ovary in order to get a handful of competent oocytes. And oftentimes you end up with a, or a negative outcome. And the reason why you got to transplant so much to get so little is because of tissue ischemia. It takes time for the vasculature in that ovary or the fragment of the ovary for the vasculature to reanastomose and restore circulation to the graft. And many groups, including my own, have developed some strategies aimed at improving vascular recovery in grafts. But here we are arriving at the story. Finally, Karen Bunchu's group from the University of Ulm in Germany had a, a more nuanced approach. You see, more than 90% of the primordial follicles that, that are in the ovary reside in the ovarian cortex. Hence, all the methods for ovarian tissue cryopreservation typically strip away all the ancillary tissues, namely the, the medulla, in order to maximize the penetration of the cryoprotectant into the tissue and also minimize the temperature gradient distribution across the tissue during the freezing process so you don't get crystallization or you mitigate at least crystallization and, and cell rupture. But the, the medulla, that's the thing, the medulla is very vessel rich. We all know that. And Dr. Bunshu reasoned that retention of the medullary tissue with the graft could provide a sort of vascular assist, right, during the recovery and reanastomosis process. So getting to the paper, I mean, spoiler alert here, the transplantation with medulla was better. Hey, surprise, surprise. We knew that was going to be the case. But I think the approach here deserves a bit more attention. First, they used a, a bovine ovary uh, for, not a, multiple bovine ovaries as their source of tissue, which is nice because it provides an approximation of human ovarian anatomy and physiology, but enables very careful consideration of the age, health, history of the animal, you know, you can control for a lot of things. Also, you can control for the processing of the tissue and do it under a controlled and optimized conditions, right? And all the tissue presumably will look more like the other relative to the patient-derived tissue, which has a very diverse background and everybody, you know, does it a different way. So that was the first thing. I liked the model using the bovine tissue. And second, they were xenografting the tissue into the Corian allantois membrane. I, I never heard of that. I guess I should know about that. But the Corian allantois membrane of chicken eggs, okay, 
which allows for a, a rigorous and consistent experimental platform that assesses the viability of the grafted tissue in this vascular rich tissue, you know, something that's hooked up to a blood supply and a little beating heart there in the egg. Ultimately, the authors showed that there was decreased death, increased vascular density, improved follicle survival, all the metrics that you would expect um, for a benefit when you did transplant with the medulla uh, retained. And, and the real upshot here is that perhaps it's time after, you know, there's been a lot of debate in the conferences of how we should process tissue thinner is better, or, you know, it, it all pretty much arrives at the consensus that we should be getting rid of the medulla. So I think that this is a, a big splash for me because it opens the door to this idea that we should be retaining tissue and, and it aligns with my thinking, which is that we need a way to get these uh, tissues re-anastomosed and revascularized with, a, and I like to use a kind of cell-based approach, but here even better, I think an autologous uh, kind of intrinsic source of, of cells to um, benefit the survival of the tissue. So I really enjoyed this story and I invite you and all our listeners to check it out. Very interesting. I, I wonder, uh, now we don't do, or I don't do uh, many of these procedures when we're grafting tissue. We don't, we just don't have the capabilities currently at our facility. Um, that's in the works. Maybe one day we will, but currently we don't. So I don't know a lot of the technicalities that go into doing the surgery. And I don't know, Pietro, if you do them at Cornell, but I'm just curious based off of this method, if it would be a little bit more technically or surgically challenging to get to more of the dense portion, the medullary portion of the ovary? And is this going to be, when you you know do this in the human model, is this going to be more difficult, more blood loss, risking just removing the entire ovary. So those are just questions I had when I was going through this paper. Yes, that's a great point. I think that if you're talking about biopsy of the ovary, I think it's certainly safer to, to stick to the cortical region as much as possible to reduce bleeding. I mean, I'm no surgeon, but yeah, it's vascular rich. So I, I, I'd expect to have the risk of bleeding here. I think that what we're talking about here is in the case where you take out one whole ovary, leave one behind, take out a whole ovary and are processing it. I think that in those instances, and I, I see moving forward, that maybe there's an opportunity to it both ways, you know, to have a, a bit of an A-B testing, because you should be able to get about 12 to 14 or more cortical strips from a, a healthy ovary. And, and I think when, when you have the means there with the whole ovary to work with, it, it's, it's certainly worth uh, trying. And, and I think that to your point, the technical challenges with, with surgery, and everyone has different methods, but the one thing which I like about this paper is that the consensus seems to be smaller or thinner is better. It's all about the oxygen diffusion, and that'll improve tissue viability. So for me, it's a counterintuitive, anti-dogmatic idea here, which may result in an, even a conceptual advance, which is that more tissue isn't necessarily worse, um, as long as that tissue has a, a kind of piping inside of it that can can hook up to the main line and preserve uh, blood flow throughout all those cells. And to speak a little bit to the surgical point, we do do a lot of this at Cornell. It's something I plan on doing in the future because I think it's it really has a role for patients. We try to decide uh, early on whether or not we're going to be taking whole ovary versus cortex based largely on the patient's age. Pediatric patients, patients who are closer to that the transition where they start to have menses, their ovarian volumes are just smaller. Um, so you have a hard time really getting long cortical strips um, and minimal damage. So sometimes the discussion there is let's take the whole ovary on one side um, and then do the dissection at the bench 
to make sure that we get the strips that we need and are able to thin them out and separate them. But however, when you get to the adult patient, you just have more volume and surface area to work with. So you really are able to use the magnification of laparoscopy to be able to really get into the ovary, find the plane and create these long strips that you can remove atraumatically without a lot of monopolar bipolar electrosurgery and remove atraumatically through your, your ports um, and be able to then pass them off to the lab where kind of, I really think the magic happens. The least complicated part of this, I think is the surgical portion. The most complicated, I think is the tissue prep, the dissection, the cryopreservation and something that I think Dalon's lab here at Cornell has really helped a lot with um, kind of just developing the process, the technique. And I don't know, Dalon, can you speak to that a little bit, how long it takes to actually get a working tissue specimen once it's come from from the ORTU. Yeah, well, the great thing about having an academic center like our own here is that the cold uh, ischemic interval and warm ischemic interval for that matter is really quite abbreviated. Um, and we'll get the tissue within an hour of resection and we can have a process two hours after that. And yes, we're working in, in, in the clinical space uh, with both whole ovary and um, with strips, but in terms of the rationale for taking out the whole ovary, there may be the fear that you will accelerate menopause, but the studies have shown that while there may be a significant, a mildly significant um, acceleration, we're talking about like 39 versus 41 or something like that. So this isn't likely to have a, a dramatic effect on fertility in these patients and taking out a whole ovary, I think it, for some of these patients who have an uncertain future with regard to how much of the remaining ovary is going to be ablated by the therapy, having it more tissue to work with, I think is certainly a boon. All right. Well, Blake, you're going to be our anchor today on the podcast. You have an article that is entirely unrelated to chicken eggs and bovine ovaries and not really related to CRP either. But tell us a little bit about what we need to know about euploid embryos implanting. Thanks, Pietro. So I'm going to be discussing an article entitled A Review of Factors Influencing the Implantation of Euploid Blastocysts After In Vitro Fertilization. This is by first author Evan Rochef. Uh, and senior author Eric Foreman, both out of Columbia University Fertility Center. So a little bit of background as, uh, as to this paper. In general, the authors discuss that there are three main factors that contribute to embryo implantation. Of those are embryo quality, endometrial receptivity, and embryo transfer technique. And of these factors, the authors argue that embryo quality is the most important and perhaps the least well understood. So by controlling for ploidy status, these variables can be systematically studied to determine which factors may better predict whether a euploid blastocyst successfully implants. In this review, the authors explore published retrospective and prospective studies that have included only euploid blastocysts after undergoing trophectoderm biopsy in PGTA and examines many other factors that may impact implantation. There are many factors that the authors recommend to optimize cycle outcome, so I'm going to briefly highlight some of them, although as always, I do recommend for our listeners to go back and read through this article because I do find it very clinically useful and an enlightening read. I really enjoyed this paper and this review. So the first things we're going to look at are the embryonic factors. Morphology is the first thing that they highlight, and they discuss that most studies indicate that morphological grading should be used to guide selection amongst euploid embryos. So if you have an embryo status, uh, 4AA, for example, versus 4CC, 
and they're both euploid, going with the better embryologic status or morphologic status is recommended based off the studies they reviewed. They also discussed the day of embryo biopsy, and they found that most studies would agree that day seven embryos have a lower implantation than day five and day six euploid blastocysts, and day five and six have fairly similar implantation rates. They also discussed uterine factors. The first one they highlight is endometritis, and they highlight how some studies show that about a third of women with recurrent implantation failure are diagnosed with chronic endometritis, and this is an immunohistochemical stain that looks for a marker called CD138. And this indicates that you have plasma cells inside of the endometrial stroma, indicating endometritis. They discuss that there's no data on euploid versus aneuploid embryos, but there are data to support improved clinical pregnancy rates and live birth rates in those treated for endometritis. And this is something that should be considered. They next talk about endometriosis. This is one of my favorite studies, and this is also by one of my former co-fellows at NIH, Dr. Lauren Bishop. And this shows that in patients with known endometriosis and undergo a euploid frozen embryo transfer, compared to controls that have either male factor infertility or those that are undergoing IVF purely for the sake of PGTM, they found that there was no difference in live birth rates or aneuploidy rates amongst patients with endometriosis, which I find in my patients always find very reassuring when I tell them the findings of the study. They talk about the endometrial scratch. Oh, the endometrial scratch. I always chuckle thinking about this test because in fellowship, there seemed to be a stretch of journal clubs where we'd inevitably have someone put an article in about endometrial scratch and it would drive one of our faculty, Dr. Woodrow, it would drive him nuts. And we would then spend a very long duration of time just tearing apart these articles only to ultimately find out that we don't recommend doing this test. And so Dr. Eric Widger would always just go nuts when we would find out there was another scratch test that we we're discussing. So it should come as no surprise, that's what the authors of this paper found. For patients with recurrent implantation failure, um, they discussed that many of the available studies either have several limitations to the randomization process or lack thereof randomization. Uh, the timing when the biopsy is done is much different in all of these studies, and many studies just don't show that it works at all. So the authors conclude that there's no apparent benefit prior to euploid transfer based on the available data to recommend an endometrial scratch. They then discuss IVF protocols, and with regards to these, they found no correlation with gonadotropin dose, duration of stimulation, type of trigger, or follicle size with regard to aneuploidy. And they also briefly discuss endometrial receptivity assay. And in patients with recurrent implantation failure or those with their first euploid transfer, they found that there's no definitive data to suggest the duration of progesterone administration prior to transfer of the euploid embryo to increase chances of successful implantation or clinical pregnancy. And I know, uh, Pietro, you all had discussed uh, Dr. Nicole Doyle's paper uh, her randomized controlled trial on the FNS on air uh, podcast as well. And so that's one of the biggest studies today discussing this. Um, they also discuss several maternal and patient factors, really. And they look at, interestingly, uh, there's a publication from Reich et al. out of RMA, New Jersey. And they discuss the implantation rates for euploid embryos were negatively correlated with age. So even with a euploid embryo, an odds ratio compared to the youngest group of less than 35 years of age decreases with time. So it goes down to odds ratio 0.85 in those that are 30 to 40 
um, about 0.7 and those that are 41 to 42 and 0.5 that are the age over 42. So even with the euploid embryo is still decreased successfully over time. Um, they also looked at a number of factors, again, that I encourage you to go back and look at that do not ultimately influence aneuploidy, but can possibly improve pregnancy rates. So things like DNA fragmentation, thyroid levels, BMI, vitamin D levels, um, et cetera. So again, they have a nice table that summarizes all of these findings. And the last section that I'll discuss, they, they talked about embryology uh, in the lab and embryo protocols. They discussed that embryos created from previously vitrified oocytes did not have a higher level of aneuploidy. Cleavage stage biopsies have, uh, they do have adequate DNA samples for analysis. However, this is uh, at least a lower implantation can be detrimental to the embryo because you're taking such a large chunk out of an embryo compared to a day five biopsy. Um, and although the data are mixed, but it does appear that multiple rounds of in which an embryo undergoes vitrification and biopsy, for example, in the setting of a no result embryo, where you need to rethaw it, rebiopsy, then revitrify it, it may possibly affect the implantation of these euploid embryos. So in conclusion, the main takeaway points are um, to choose the optimal euploid blast for single embryo transfer. The embryo's morphological grade and the day of blast development should be considered. Um, also, patient factors such as optimal weight and thyroid hormone status should be addressed to optimize a healthy, um, healthy patient status prior to transfer. They also highlight the choice of in vitro stimulation, um, or excuse me, in vitro fertilization stimulation protocol. And frozen thawed transfer protocols don't appear to have a significant impact on successful implantation of euploid blast um, success rates. And then lastly, the timing, the size, and the number of biopsies do appear to have an impact on implantation of euploid blastocysts. So, a lot to unpack here. Um, it's, uh, these review articles are very helpful. Of course, they're lengthy and there's much, much more to go into that um, I can't stress enough to go back and read. But what do you guys think about this study? Um, how can we optimize cycle outcome considerations you guys have? I have nothing to say about any of that. But for me, it's all about table one. Table one is so dope. In fact, if you guys need to sit out a day or anything, you got some business, you got some board, tests that you're about to fail, send me the Zoom link and I will consult with your patients just based on table one alone. I could answer probably 90% of the questions that your average patient asks just from table one summary statements. So I loved looking at this paper. It made me feel like a little kind of armchair doctor. I think you took the comment right out of my mouth. I think my, after reading this article, what I have done and I encourage everyone to do is look at table one and consider creating either a document, a dot phrase, something that you can reference when you have a patient who is having a, a, a euploid embryo transfer that fails and you're trying to decide what to do next. Because I think table one is actually a really nice checklist that you can run through in your mind or even with your patients and come up with a, these are things I can modify, these are things we can't, these are things that we can try to change in the next cycle if we decide to create more embryos. Um, so I think there's a ton of value in understanding where the evidence is but table one, like Dalon says, organizes it in a way that you can really be methodical and almost checklisty. And I love a, a good checklist. Like, like we always talk about how pilots have them, we should have them. This is a great, great thing to have in the back of your mind, have in your notes, have with your patients, because it's just useful. And if we, if we tell too many people about it, we're going to have people like Dalon trying to do consults for us. Um, and but I'd be okay with it because the, the table really is so great.
Yeah, definitely. And think about really each of those bullet points on table one. That's like a 20 minute conversation that you have with your patients about something they read online or something they heard their patient or their friend talk about. And, and, and this stuff is important to address and this having the data behind it to discuss is, is super important. So I like the idea of a dot phrase. I'm going to steal that from you. And Elon, you've got some patients coming your way, my man. For the record, I would like everybody listening to know that I would never, ever give advice to anyone, much less a patient. I mean, I don't give advice to my own kids. Well, the advice I'll give is that all of our listeners can continue the conversation uh, regarding all of the articles coming out in FNS and our family of journals online, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and now LinkedIn, if you haven't checked it out. And as always, it's been a pleasure to be back here with you, Dalon and Blake, and we will see you and all of our listeners next time. Bye-bye. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 